This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Just as people are starting to feel better again about this whole thing, cases beginning to plateau, even increase a bit in some areas. It comes as restrictions are being eased. People are getting the vaccines. So can we still hope? The CDC hasn't really said much about what people should and shouldn't be doing if they are fully vaccinated. So we will talk to a doctor who can maybe help us figure it out. There's that hope again. We hope he'll help us figure it out. Later, we get into how the vaccines are made. This can explain why the drug companies can't just whip up tens of million doses, you know, next week. Let's start with whether cases can keep dropping, if we can beat this plateau, or if we'll see another surge. Dr. Asha George is executive director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Doctor, is it getting better or is it not getting better? Well, I think it's getting better, but uh, look, we still have 66,000 cases of COVID, uh, or 63, sorry, uh, 1,000 cases of COVID per week. So uh, while I I understand people talking about how case numbers are plummeting, um, I'm pretty sure the people that are in that 63,000 are still uh, suffering and would caution everybody else to still be careful. So do we get used to the new numbers, whatever it is, wherever we we take the cases up and there's a surge and everybody says, oh, my gosh, this is so bad. Let me stay inside. And then they come down, they start to plateau. We go, OK, well, look, we've brought them down, not realizing that, you know, scale back three months, go another three back, three back. It's getting worse each time we're plateauing at a higher number. Uh, these numbers would have been super bad, you know, over the winter or, you know, last year. Right, right. Well, look, what we have to do, obviously, we need to start opening things back up and we can't stay on full lockdown forever. Um, we need to we need to get those vaccines out to everybody, but we also still need to follow the public health measures we were talking about uh, last year and, and through until this year. We still need to wash our hands. That hasn't suddenly become a bad idea. We still need to wear a mask. We need to be aware of what disease is still around us. Um, we need to spread out when we can, and we need to uh, be prepared to keep vaccinating. Uh, When you look at the variants um, and what people are saying about this disease and coronavirus in general, we should expect that it's going to be with us for a very long time. But you just said something very interesting in passing when you said that we can't stay in full lockdown forever, and you're right. The question is, have we ever really been in full lockdown? When you look at the way it's been handled Granted, periodically, they've done a better job than other times, but the U.K., France, Spain, Italy, Germany, all of those countries have had far more severe lockdowns than I think almost any place in this country has ever had. So should we really be surprised that we can't get rid of this or at least greatly reduce this infection? You're you're absolutely right, and 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 you're right to have caught me on on misspeaking a little bit there. We we have not gone on full lockdown ever in this country. That's true, um, but I, I do think that for those people that have stayed home and been assiduously careful, um, they can't do that forever. And I think also we've seen what happens in these other countries when they have lifted um, uh, their restrictions. It 
it's not like COVID is gone and then they lift their restrictions and it stays gone. Um, we have to be really, really careful and mindful of, of what cases we have around us and what happens if we lift these restrictions and case numbers go back up, then I think we need to be prepared to reimpose those restrictions or at least some of them and keep managing risk as we go forward. Yeah. So can't stay locked down forever. This everybody knows and agrees upon. You, you still worry, though, about like too much of uh, spring break happening in the next couple of months. People are going to want to go somewhere and not everyone's going to have their vaccine yet, but they're thinking, oh, I'm going to get mine in a month or two anyway. So I could take a vacation right now. Things aren't that bad. Yeah, I'm I'm what I'm worried about is people getting the wrong message from what they're hearing. So if you have the Texas governor saying, we're lifting everything, you know, no more restrictions, nothing at all, our case rates are plummeting, we're squared away, then what people hear is we don't have COVID at all. It's gone forever. We don't ever have to worry about it period. Meanwhile, there are still hundreds of cases in Texas and people are coming in and out of Texas. So it doesn't it doesn't quite quite match up with the reality. I think we have to be really careful with this. We need to be uh, cautioning the American public and making sure they have the information they need to keep themselves safe and aware. But I, I must say, yes, you know, people are so anxious to get out there and go to the movies and go down for spring break. Um, we're just going to have to keep talking with people and making sure they understand what the what the real risk is. Millions of people have been fully vaccinated around the U.S. already. So what are health officials telling them they can do without worry? Well, we don't really know. Yeah, the CDC hasn't been clear. They're supposed to release some guidelines. Uh, they were supposed to this week. It hasn't happened on the do's and don'ts for the fully vaccinated. Uh, Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine, infectious diseases at Vanderbilt. Uh, doctor, welcome back. Uh, what can people do who are fully vaccinated and what can't they do? Well, I have no insights into what the CDC is going to say, but it is a frequently asked question. There's no doubt. Uh, let's start with people who are fully vaccinated. Can they, for example, get together for a little dinner party? And I would say absolutely yes. Uh, that's a very good idea. And uh, what about people visiting their grandparents who are vaccinated, but the visitors, the kids and the grandkids are not? Then it depends a lot on how observant the kids and the grandkids have been with safety. So I, I think it gets a little bit complicated very, very quickly. So we are at least okay with, or you are, with the vaccine bubble. Me and my neighbors, we have our vaccines. We can go inside, we can eat dinner, and we can lose those masks because I've been vaccinated. They have. It's the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated that we still have some trouble with. That it's the vaccinated mixed with the unvaccinated. In general, once we're out in the world, we should all be wearing masks and still observing social distancing. But I think if we come together and uh, don't spend too much time together, but if we're all vaccinated, I think we can enjoy a dinner party or a game of cards for sure. Now, I've already heard some of this, uh, and here's how it goes, Doctor. Well, okay, I've been vaccinated. My friends have been vaccinated. We want to get together for that dinner party. But suppose one of us has one of these variants. Then what? Yeah, well, life is not perfect. So we're all <laughs> going to have to decide. We've noticed that, right? Uh, we're all going to have to decide how much risk is worth our benefits. And that's why 
certainly outside the house, we all need to continue to be careful. So once we do get together, we minimize the risk. One of the words I don't use is that four-letter word safe because it sounds like absolute protection. We're talking about reducing the risk. Well, we've talked about this before, I think even maybe with you, and that's, you know, if we were in normal times, which we're not, but if we were, and it was winter and there are viruses going around and, and I was going to go see my friends, it's not the top of my concern that I'm going to get a really bad case of the flu and get sick. I'm just going to go see my friends. And, and look, we know COVID is not the flu, but does the situation still apply that if the worst that's going to happen to me is I get sick for a few days and I can ride this out at home because we know that the vaccine is at least going to keep me you know, from dying and it's mostly going to keep me from going to the hospital then I can kind of operate like I would have otherwise because I know that I can ride this one out at home. It would be unfortunate if I got sick, but I'm going to survive. There is undoubtedly the needle is moving in that direction. But we need to bear in mind that we talk about at best these vaccines are 95% effective. You notice I didn't say 100%. So there's still a chance that you could get illness of some sort but the clinical trials told us that these vaccines should be good enough to keep us out of the hospital almost all the time. And does that apply again to some of these known variants? That's where we get into unknown territory. So far, we think the vaccines work pretty well against that British variant. We're a little less secure about some of the others, particularly that variant from South Africa, which is not yet widely distributed in the United States. It's here, but it's not everywhere. It's not as widely distributed as the British variant. What do you think the reluctance is, or at least the, the weight from the CDC on, on putting some of these out there? Because right now, the guidance is still that vaccinated people need to keep on doing everything that mm. they were doing before, which vaccinated people are saying, well, why? Why did I get this if nothing changed? I mean, obviously to survive, uh, but something has to change. Well, you heard me sigh because I'm <laughs> certainly glad that I don't have to write those guidelines because if you write them with too broad a brush, then nobody understands how to apply them. If you start to apply them in daily life, you get into a thousand and one possibilities. I know I've gotten all these questions this last week and a half and how to how to do it so it actually is guidance, uh, but stays away from trying to address every tiny little specific well, circumstance. I think, you know, I think part of the problem is that, that a lot of people's previous experience with other kinds of vaccines, uh, I'll just pick one, say, say measles. So mm -hmm. you get vaccinated for measles. Most people then, once you get back, you don't worry about it anymore. I mean, yeah, I guess there's a theoretical chance you might still get it, but you don't go about your life anymore worrying about it. You've been vaccinated. And I think a lot of people, are, as Mike just pointed out, are saying, OK, so if I'm going to get this vaccine, when can I just say, OK, I got it. Now I can stop worrying about it. Well, I don't think we're ever going to get there because there are variants out there. Unlike measles, that's a virus that's been as solid as a rock for decades. Whereas this virus, ah, it can juke and jive and create these variants that are working to try to evade the vaccine. And the measles vaccine is even more effective than the COVID vaccine. So 
we would like it to be that solid that once you get vaccinated, it's like putting on a suit of armor, but it's not quite that good, as good as it is. Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine, infectious diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Coming up after this short break, why can't we be faster at making vaccines? Vaccine distribution in the U.S. hasn't gone as smoothly as we had hoped. We've had shortage issues, especially here in California. The process of making them, shipping them, getting them to people has been tough. So why can't we make the vaccines faster? KYW's Charlotte Reese talks to Jason Diaz, assistant professor in the Integrated Science Business Technology Program at LaSalle University, about the whole process. I'm very happy to say that um, there's been a lot of transparency in the formulation of the vaccines. So, of course, these are called mRNA vaccines. And so the major component is that mRNA, that messenger RNA, which is a kind of nucleotide similar to DNA. Um, And then that's going to be wrapped in this special lipid bubble called a lipid nanoparticle, which is going to deliver the mRNA into the cell. So that's already two kind of classes of things that are in the vaccine is the RNA wrapped around by lipids. And then that's in a solution that's... um, what we say buffered. So it has a very constant pH that's going to match kind of what the pH is inside your body uh, and water. And there's also a little bit of sugar in there, um, which is just to help um, keep the vaccine from being damaged when it's frozen because we want to freeze it to keep it um, fresh, so to speak. Um, But we also don't want any of those ice ice crystals to damage the lipid nanoparticles. That's what the sugar is there for. For the lipids, a lot of them are kind of generic lipids that you might be familiar with. So, for example, cholesterol is a major part of these particles because that's a you know something that's really useful for helping to make the shape of the lipid nanoparticle. But I will say that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines each in their mix of lipids, there's about three or four in each of those. Um, each of them have at least one that's a little bit new. That's been you know a recently patented version of a lipid that. Um, that experimentally has been shown to maybe help either stabilize the RNA inside that lipid droplet or maybe have some other function. And so um, there are some, of course, new lipids that are being used now, but largely these are biomolecules that we are very familiar with and that I think we should be um, comfortable, you know, being injected. And so the question then is, well, what's the production problem? Because like, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking, is it that the lipids are crazy or is mRNA hard to make? And actually all those things are relatively straightforward. The bottleneck really is in the process of mixing the RNA with the lipids, okay? And this is, I think, one thing that's very different from most vaccines that we are used to. Most vaccines that we're used that we are used to are either actual virus particles, you know, alive or dead, or a part of that virus particle, so a protein. And so in those cases, those are just we take the particle or the protein out, we purify it, put it into that buffered solution, stick it into, into someone's arm. What we haven't really been doing with vaccines is trying to get this perfect mix of multiple components in just the right ratio to get this final product. So that's a new process thing. And And it's a kind of, you know, it's down to an exact science, but it requires some very special setup. So there's this whole technology called microfluidics where a very, 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 very small uh, scale, we have very small volumes of liquid being injected at just the right flow rate, at just the right times to mix these components in such a way that the final product are these perfectly formed spheres of lipids with at least one or likely more copies of mRNA inside. And that's a 
that's a very, very difficult process. And, um, you know, people figure that out, but it's not one of those things that like, you can just go to like any vaccine manufacturer and they'll be able to do it. It really requires specialized, um, equipment and, and expertise. And I think that's where, um, that's where a lot of, I think the bottleneck is as far as the production side is concerned. It's, it's really the process and not necessarily the materials themselves. Because mm-hmm. is that much different um, compared to how other vaccines are put together then? Like, what are some of the similarities and differences? Sure. When- yeah. So, so let's talk about some similarities. So in, uh, in both cases, you know, both older vaccines and the new ones, we are essentially the active ingredient, something that we're purifying out of a culture of some sort. So what do I mean by that? Let's take the human papillomas virus vaccine, for example, like Gardasil. Those vaccines are proteins that um, are from the HPV virus and they are made actually in yeast cells. So these are yeasts that have been genetically modified to produce these proteins. You grow this in this huge vat called a bioprocessor. And then, you know, you take some of, you know, take the, the yeast out, you, you kill the yeast and you get rid of all the stuff you don't need and you somehow purify that vaccine protein out. In the same way, you do the same thing with mRNA. You have bacteria in this case that have the DNA for uh, a COVID gene called Spike they make a whole ton of um, RNA for this, and then you can purify the RNA out. And so that purif- so there are going to be some di- slight differences because protein is not the same as RNA, and I don't need to necessarily go into those specifics because in general, the idea is the same. But what's different, of course, is that for the mRNA uh, vaccines, there's this extra step of now taking that purified product and mixing it just perfectly with the correct balance of lipids and then putting that into some solution. Whereas for the HPV vaccine, you can just take the protein you've purified out of cells and mix it with whatever the final formulation is and then stick it into a person. Um, and so that extra step, it sounds like just just one extra step, but actually the technology required to do that, not just correctly, but consistently correctly. That's the other thing, right? When you're doing something on this scale, you want to make sure that you are consistently for every lot making active vaccines. So everything is being mixed correctly every single time for millions and millions of doses. And so that's where that's where the, like, the big difference is. And again, that's where the bottleneck is for, for production so far. Mm-hmm. And I keep thinking about the flu vaccine because I think that's one that a lot of people get every year. And we always hear that it's a little bit different, right, depending on the strands that scientists predict. And I keep thinking, is the COVID vaccine going to be like that one day? What are kind of the strengths and weaknesses with respect to adapting it to the future? That's a great question. And I think we have a lot of great experience with influenza. I know that people have mixed feelings about, you know, the influenza vaccine not always being, you know, 90% effective or necessarily. And that's just because flu is just constantly shifting and we're honestly doing our best and we're keeping, you know, we're making more improvements every time. But, uh, you know, the flu vaccine in at least the United States is uh, grown in chicken eggs uh, as a kind of cheap and easy way to make a ton of vaccine. And, and there's this whole infrastructure of surveillance of, you know, flu that's happening in the Southern hemisphere that then informs what's probably going to come in the Northern hemisphere. And so we have a little bit of lead time. Uh, and so it's it's a very tight process for the flu vaccine, and and we're really relying on isolating those 
flu va- viruses that are happening in, in the Southern Hemisphere to then create the vaccine uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. One of the really big advantages with mRNA technology is that you don't even need to have a physical sample of what actually made someone sick. You just need to know what the sequence is for that genome. And that's actually how the RNA vaccines came into being. You know, the first published genome was in January of last year of coronavirus. And within a couple of days, the group that ended up pairing with Moderna uh, at the NIH was able to just figure out, okay, we're going to do the spike protein and we have the sequence for it. And they can synthesize it without having any clinical samples from China. This was again back in January of 2020. And so because all you need to know is the sequence, you can actually adapt the sequence of the mRNA component very quickly. What's very exciting to me is that it looks like the FDA is going to allow Pfizer and Moderna and other mRNA vaccines to uh, have a much smaller, it's sort of a clinical trial. It's not really a a full clinical trial, three-phase clinical clinical trial, but it's going to be a much smaller experimental um, setup for testing these alternative vaccines, Uh, these these new, like the ones that are going to be matched, like the new variants. And so instead of having to wait to do a whole, like, you know, six-month three-phase trial for every time we have to do a new, you know, a new sequence to match a new strain. The FDA, ha- the FDA has said, you know, the, these guys can just do a small safety study to make sure that they're safe and to make sure they're still immunogenic. We're still producing antibody. Um, but that's a much easier pathway now for Pfizer and Moderna and other mRNA vaccines to quickly generate new vaccines that are better matched to what's going out there. So I actually think you know, in the future, if we're in a situation where COVID becomes the flu, uh, the flu, and that it's just always here and always changing every year, I actually think we're going to have a better time keeping up with COVID changes than we are with influenza changes because of how rapid we can change the formulation of the um, vaccine. But you know, that's my that's a hypothesis. We'll have to see how that really plays out. But from a technology standpoint, I would actually be very optimistic that at worst it'll be just as good as influenza. And we actually have some reason to think that it might be a little bit even better for COVID than it has been for influenza. New data suggests your body's immune system might do a good job at fighting these variants going around if you've already had the virus or have been vaccinated. The La Jolla Institute for Immunology finds the T-cell response is unaffected. The T-cells induced by vaccines can recognize pieces of the virus spike protein, while T-cells induced by previous infection recognize multiple parts of the virus, including the spike and other proteins. Scientists say T-cells probably won't prevent infection, but can reduce COVID-19 severity. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.